Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. Is he a first class airline executive? I don't know, but he certainly gets to at least sit in a big front seat. It's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Imagine loving cars as a child, but then never working for a car company, but still being considered by the media as an auto industry expert. That's what airlines are for NPR here and now transportation analyst Seth Kaplan. (laughs) Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about why potential airline mergers are back in the news in America. We'll listen to a real customer complaint against an airline and discuss whether the airline is evil or the customer is a weasel. And that's in our fine or wine segment. And we'll take your questions. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Was the American Airlines U.S. Airways merger earlier this decade really the airline merger to end all mergers? A lot of people sure thought so. But now there's new talk about possible further consolidation in the U.S., And this time, the rationale for it could be very different. Southwest Airlines, in particular, is the subject of some speculation. The thinking goes like this. Growth has always been an important part of Southwest's business model, still is. But right now, it can't grow because of the 737 MAX grounding. It was supposed to be putting several new MAXs in the air each month. Can't do that, of course. So the only way to grow might be what's called inorganic growth. In other words, buying another airline instead of just buying airplanes. Well, meanwhile, Southwest raised a lot of eyebrows recently when it said it might be willing to fly something other than 737s. That's a big deal for an airline that only flies 737s, like 700 of them, right? Well, Ben, I was reading a story earlier in the Dallas Business Journal looking at possible targets for Southwest, Alaska, JetBlue, maybe Spirit, maybe Frontier. But One analyst quoted in the piece made a comment that I think inadvertently highlights how different the thinking is nowadays. This analyst was saying Alaska might be less interesting than those other possibilities because the other airlines would give Southwest more exposure to Airbus, to A320s. So I want to say that again, because that's what made me read this twice, that a benefit of buying an airline might be because it has mostly A320s. In other words, a benefit would be a lack of fleet commonality. Ben, that's certainly not how people used to evaluate airline mergers, uh, certainly when they came to low-cost airlines, a lack of fleet commonality. Well, that's exactly right, Seth. And I think the uh, the person who said that that was actually a disadvantage for a Southwest merger with Alaska uh, they certainly have never worked at an airline because uh, they wouldn't real. They would realize how complicating and how potentially cost intrusive it is to have two different airplane types. That's why Southwest and airlines like Ryanair um, have stuck to single. Um, airplane types in their business models. You train the pilots once, and obviously they're recurrently trained, but you're not training them for a new piece of equipment. You have one set of spare parts. You have mechanics who can know how to fit fix that airplane type. You have those same parts in the same stations. You don't have to worry about a station having, you know, which plane's going to show up today and do I have the mechanics that can fix it and things like that. So the, uh, the reality is, is fleet commonality is a big deal for cost control. 
Now, if you look at Southwest, they used to be thought of as a low fare airline. People still call them a low cost airline. I'll tell you, my last two flights on Southwest on under two hour flights cost me $770 for one from DC to Louisville and then DC to Chicago, $805. So I'm not sure how low fare they are anymore. But that, but this is an airline that over the last, you know, five, 10 years has paid for slots at Reagan National, paid for slots in LaGuardia, um, tried to move into Newark and has done things that sort of the, you know, the 1980s, 1990s, 2000 Southwest would never do, right? They were the airline of the alternative airport, basically. And uh, so the idea that they would think about flying an Airbus isn't out of the realm of possibility given other decisions they've made. However, thinking that as a benefit to a merger, I think is still a real stretch. It's it's just the reality right now that with the Max situation, all kinds of airlines are facing things that that they never imagined, and and something that that has been a benefit for Southwest all these years. The simplicity uh, has them kind of beholden now to Boeing. You mentioned Ryanair. There's an airline that. Uh, what a year or two ago bought a small airline that happens to be an Airbus operator. Uh, it's called Lotta Motion in, in Austria. And at the time, this was before the Max grounding. Uh, Ryanair said that it was happy to have this little bit of exposure to Airbus, and, and it sure just kind of sounded like a negotiating tactic, yeah. right, to, to show Boeing that hey, we have alternatives. But you know, now that turned out to be even even more uh, prescient in, in in a way. Ryanair too, uh, with with something that seemed ridiculous, and and yet uh, yeah, not being completely beholden to one uh, manufacturer. Well, and let's be fair, uh, Seth, to all airlines. airline yeah. types too, because airlines like American and United and Delta, and you know, in Europe, the Lufthansa's and the IAGs and things like that, they actually have you know, publicly stated and through their actions shown that they actually believe that flying airplanes from both Airbus and Boeing is a better strategy for them because they believe they have better negotiating leverage with each carrier. I mean, imagine how much leverage Southwest has over Boeing if Boeing believes they will never fly anything but a 737. You know, right, not, not yeah, much. Compared yeah, to yeah. if Southwest says, you know, look, we'll fly an Airbus, it sort of puts gets Boeing on their heels a bit. So, you know, when American made a really big order a couple of years ago, finally replacing sort of these older airplanes they were flying or with, you know, the goal to replace the, all of those. They, they you know, at the same time made a deal with Boeing and Airbus for the same size airplanes. And so it's a strategy for higher fare airlines and, and airlines with really large fleets. I remember when I worked at American a long time ago, there were people in the fleet department who believed, and I'm not sure that there's a lot of people who believe this today, but there were people who believed that as long as the fleet sizes were large enough of each, that you got the scale economy anyway. So if you had yeah. 300 Airbus and 300 Boeing, that might be just as efficient as 600 of one, right? And I don't know that anybody really thinks that's exactly true today, but it's certainly closer to true than if you have just 10 of each. Then if you're just small, there's no question. Delta, in fact, uh, a few years ago, I remember saying that publicly that that just, you know, once you get, I think they put the number at sort of like 75 of a, of a certain type, that that's where uh, you kind of get declining returns, you know, that that it's that it's a lot more efficient to have 50 than to have 25 of something. It's a lot more efficient to have 75 than to have 50. But sort of once they're beyond, if I remember that correctly, that was the number they used, uh, you know, once they're beyond that, you know, they sort of have the scale. And if you think about those giant airlines, I mean, and you're right, right? American 
has the credibility to tell Boeing, hey, if you don't give us a better deal, uh, we're going to buy Airbus or vice versa. United has that credibility. Uh, Delta has that credibility because all of those airlines ordered from both of them. And what's interesting is that all the, the, the big mergers that created all three of those giant airlines, you actually had in every one of those three cases, a primarily Boeing airline merging with a primarily Airbus airline, right? You had Boeing, you know, Delta was a Boeing airline, basically, uh, merging with Northwest, which was an Airbus airline, American Boeing, until that, you know, that, that, that order right. you described, uh, at the end there merged with Airbus, uh, or merged with us airways rather, as you well know, because you, you were, you were there if I'm not mistaken, right. When they, when they ordered, you know, became, uh, Airbus's biggest That's customer right, yeah. in the late nineties and United, uh, an Airbus airline primarily merging with uh, continental, which, which was, uh, exclusively Boeing. And, and, uh, and, and I think all those airlines do feel good about having that, that, uh, credibility. But again, we talked about the fleet commonality as a really important for cost control. And none of those airlines think about cost before they think about revenue. They think about revenue first, cost second. Airlines like Orion Air or like Southwest used to be would think about cost first and would still be, would still sort of abhor the idea of two different fleet types. Absolutely. Well, uh, speaking of Airbus, it's selling another 300 aircraft to an Indian airline called Indigo. Uh, all of these aircraft are in the A320neo family. Those are the planes that compete against the 737 MAX. This comes on the heels of an order by Spirit in the U.S. for 100 more A320 family aircraft. Uh, Spirit, as we mentioned before, flies only A320s. Uh, ben, Airbus is really operating in a different universe here from Boeing, isn't it? Taking orders by the hundreds of units while Boeing struggles to get any at this point for the 737. Well, for the narrow body airplanes or the single aisle airplanes, as some people call them, that's certainly the case that since the grounding of the MAX, Airbus has continued to place orders. Now, it's important to think that for an airline like Indigo and Spirit, those were all Airbus airlines anyway. So ordering more Airbus airplanes isn't sort of this, you know, nobody would have expected them to place a big 737 MAX order had the plane not be grounded. But the fact is they're they're buy their Airbus is still selling airplanes. Indigo, for those who don't know the airline, is is a large carrier in India. In fact, they carry fifty percent of the Indian domestic passengers in and around India. So they're uh, they're yeah. bigger, you know, proportionately they're bigger than any U.S. airline for the domestic market. No U.S. airline has half the market, and Indigo has half yeah. the Indian market. Um, but that said, you know. Airbus is selling lots of airplanes, even if it is to Airbus customers. And what that's doing, it's solidifying that, you know, they're going to have these big fleets. And the more Airbus airplanes has for a low cost airline like Indigo or like Spirit, it's going to be hard for the hard, even harder for them to think about when do we put a Boeing in here uh, unless they start thinking like an American and say we want two different airplane types. But that's a long way off for true low cost airlines like Indigo and Spirit. Yeah, as you mentioned, we were talking there about the the, the single aisle or, or narrow body as they're called aircraft. We're, worth mentioning that the 737 is not obviously the only commercial jet that Boeing sells. Uh, it has its whole line of wide body or twin aisle aircraft, the 777s and the 787 Dreamliners especially. And in that space, it remains highly competitive against Airbus. If anything, Boeing is the leader uh, when it when it comes to that. I mean, nothing sells better than than the Dreamliner, especially. These yeah, days. that's exactly right. And uh, even though the world buys more narrow body airplanes than wide body airplanes, the wide body airplanes per unit make a lot more money for the manufacturers. 
and Boeing has been ahead in that race from the beginning. I mean, they, you know, they had the 747 for a long time that was a, that flew around the world for lots of airlines. And it took a while for Airbus to sort of get into that market originally with the A300, then, you know, then the A330 and the A330 is still a popular airplane, but with the A330 and the re-engined A330neo, and the A350, they're still working hard to try to catch up with Boeing's big head start and big um, um, advantage position in the wide body airplane. So all the talk of the MAX and where Airbus may be gaining ground versus Boeing on the single aisles, it's just a completely different world in the wide body space. Now they sell fewer units, but they make more money with every unit. So there's uh, the world's really interested in that, and Boeing is still way in the lead on that. Yeah. Well, well now, cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential. That brings us to this week's uh, first question uh, for, from a listener. And this is a question very much related to everything we just discussed. Uh, this one comes from Alan, who emailed us asking, is this the end of the 737 era? Will Boeing need to retire the airplane and build a totally new airframe to win back uh, consumer confidence? I want to hear what you say about this, Ben. Uh, yeah, I, I think the what's remarkable is just that somebody would even ask that question now. And I have to say, I was on CNBC recently when a host asked me uh, that question. That was part of my answer was just you know just the fact, however uh, unlikely it is in the short term, just the fact that anybody would even ask that tells us. Uh, where where we are right now with with uh, with the Max? Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, you know the the seven thirty seven Max issue is not the end of the seven thirty sevens. Remember, there's a lot more seven thirty seven non Maxes flying all around the world today, and yeah. Boeing's still supporting them. Um, the Max was clearly the future of the seven thirty seven line, of course. But the reality is, is it's not the airframe that was sort of the major issue in what caused the grounding in the first place anyway. It's other issues as we've discussed and if people has read around around software, around training, around, you know, transparency of what the air of what all the changes were to the max and things like that. And so at some point technology is going to supersede both the Max and the A320neos and move to a new generation kind of airplane, maybe with even more efficient engines, maybe with only a single pilot in the cockpit, um, or, you know, or, or maybe only needing a single pilot, even if you might still have two people up there. Right. And so it's a, uh, so the point is, um, the 737s will be replaced at some point, but it's not because of the 737 max grounding. And that replacement is 10, 20, maybe 30 years off. It's not, you know, soon because of the max grounding. You know, the A320 is a, you know, decades old technology and the 737s are decade, few decades earlier, at least one decade earlier than that. And the only real new narrow body airplane that's been designed in the last you know 10 years has been up in Canada with Bombardier with what they call the C series that that line was absorbed by Airbus and is now being sold as the A220 and one of the reasons people are so excited about that plane is because it brings in technology recent technology to an airplane for the first time that the Airbus A320 and the 737s don't bring in because they are based on older technology. So technology wins in the long term. At some point, there's a lot of economics and a lot of R&D and a lot of research that has to go into creating a new airplane. That's what will replace the 737s and the 320s. But that's not 
anytime soon, and it's certainly not related to the grounding of the Max. And in fact, the the C series, uh, now called the A220, as you mentioned, was sort of the start of all of this. Uh, you know, they they started getting just a little bit of traction, took a few orders, and Airbus was the first to say, "Whoa, let, let's see if we can quickly come to market with something competitive." So they, you know, slapped new engines on the old airframe. Uh, they offered two options, and one of them is is an engine that's very much like uh, the one that's on the C series. And those, even though they were somewhat reluctant to to go to market with that they would they would have you know kind of rather wait and, and design something all new those planes started flying off the shelf by the thousands and then boeing was the one who next felt forced to uh to do something and and to slap new engines on the on the 737 uh and boeing was just kind of unlucky that where as airbus could just put new engines on the old airframe and basically have everything you know just have it be more efficient but but without making other any other big changes um the engines didn't fit the same way on the uh, on, on the old 737 so boeing had to move the engines and and, and you know that kind of threw things out of balance a little bit. And then that's what led to MCAS and we know all the rest of it. So, 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 you know, both Airbus and Boeing were putting new engines on old airframes that never envisioned any of this from decades earlier. But, but uh, uh, Boeing, you know, was just unlucky that it took more. And, and in the end, we all see now that it didn't, you know, it, it, it didn't get it all right. Yep. Um, well, do you have a question for us? Uh, you can call 305-379-7429. That number again, 305 379 7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Uh, or you could do what Alan did. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, that's questions plural at airlines plural confidential, airlines confidential, all one word dot com. Uh, up next, it's time to listen to a consumer complaint against an airline and everybody's favorite daytime television judge, that's Judge Baldanza over here, is going to tell us who's right. It's Ben's verdict on fine or wine next on Airlines Confidential. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. All right, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. This is when we listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Uh, whoever said the customer is always right, never listened to this segment. Uh, ben, you have a complaint. Well, I, I found a good one. And this one says, this post is just to make aware of another issue we've encountered. We do not travel until April 2020. We booked a Hawaiian Airlines flight from Honolulu to Las Vegas. This is a once in a lifetime holiday on retirement. When the fares became available, we had set dates we had to work to. We booked two economy flights at $418 a person. Two months later, the same flights are only $291 per person. We were always under the impression if you booked early and paid in full, a fair price would be given. Hawaiian Airlines do have a gaff policy and will refund the money's less $40 per person admin charge, even though the e-tickets are on the same email. This is not usable even against any other services, such as baggage, however. Okay, and Ben, we happen to get a listener question about a similar topic. So, you know what? I thought we'd also listen to that now and just kind of discuss both of them together. Here's Dason in Jacksonville, Florida. Dason. Hello, Seth. This is Dason from Jacksonville, Florida. My question for today is, when is it the best time to buy tickets? Is it better way in advance 
or last minute? And also, which days are the best days to buy tickets? Thank you, and have an amazing day. Okay, so you could see the the connection there, and and yeah, I think everybody knows Ben that when you wait until the last minute to book a flight, typically you pay a lot. But what people don't all realize is that the opposite of that is not exactly true, right? It's not the earliest bird who necessarily gets the gets the cheapest airline ticket. And we can talk more about why, but just uh, am, I, am I correct that kind of the way the booking curve works when you know, you know all about airline revenue management, right? It's not booking 10 months in advance that necessarily gets you the best deal, is it? Well, that, that's right. And, and let's think about the business that airlines are in when it comes to booking flights way out. If you want to sell a flight cheap or if you want to sell a seat cheap, Airlines tend to think you can always sell it cheap. So what you're really, what revenue management is really about is forecasting how many people will pay something more than cheap, right? And making sure that there are seats for people at the time they're willing to pay for them uh, when they're ready to pay something more than cheap. So there's a lot of risk in selling a cheap ticket far out because you're taking that seat out of inventory forever to be sold to someone who might pay more without a lot of visibility yet on what the demand for higher fares are. And so the so what happens is revenue management departments tend to let computers run most of this and systems run most of this far out in the booking curve and rather than make the rather than take the risk of taking a seat out of inventory forever and selling it cheap, they just keep the fares relatively high. And if they get into six weeks, eight weeks before the flight and the seat hasn't sold, there's still plenty of time to sell that seat. And that's the time when airlines start thinking about what is this flight really going to look like when it takes off in six weeks, eight weeks or so. And that's when they start, that's when the booking curve really starts to slope up. That's when the marketing team might get nervous and say, well, we should be booked at 5% and we're only booked at 3%. Maybe that suggests a down market here, or we should be booked at 5% and we're booked at 8%. We better keep the fares high right now. And so airlines really start to focus sort of six to eight weeks out. And that's when you're going to get the best opportunity to get the lowest fares because it's once a human being's looking at it, or I should say once a human being is looking at exception reports that show the flights that are booking, you know, abnormally from what the computer thought they might book. That's where the airline reacts with a promotion or a sale or a lower fare. So if you buy early, the good news is you ensure you're going to get the flight you want. You ensure you're going to get a seat, you know, on the plane that you want. No one's going to say there's no seats available on that flight, but you're paying for that early reservation, essentially. And if you wait until six weeks or four weeks before, the likelihood you could get a lower fare is actually quite high. And, and there's some consumer psychology related to all this, right? Because if you think about, uh, and, 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 and again, I guess another way to say this is airlines are just always testing people's price sensitivity, right? Uh, I mean, just like other businesses do, right? Just like, uh, you know, somebody goes into the supermarket and just grabs that 
box of cornflakes and then whatever cost they're going to pay it, right? And somebody else, uh, you know, has a coupon and they're going to stack that on top of some kind of a store discount or sale. And if the cornflakes aren't on sale and the Rice Krispies are, they're going to buy the Rice Krispies instead. And, and uh, you know, that's how supermarkets do it with airlines. Uh, as you said, just trying to use their own tactics to get people to pay as much as they're willing to pay. But if you think about it, so, you know, the person who waits until the last minute, you know, somebody who says, hey, I got to get to Chicago tomorrow, probably a business traveler, uh, you know, maybe somebody who's going to go, you know, do a million dollar deal in Chicago tomorrow. So, of course, they're willing to pay a thousand dollars to get there. Uh, so everybody understands that. But, you know, the person who books 10 or 11 months out, and, and I want to get back to that, that uh, consumer complaint and ask what, what you think, but they said, you know, this was a, a lifetime holiday, right? A once in a lifetime holiday, they said. So here's somebody who it's really meaningful for them, right? Maybe they're nervous that if we don't book now, it's 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 uh you know it's only going to get more expensive. Whereas it's that person who books a month or two before they fly who's probably actually the most discretionary traveler, right? Somebody who's saying, "Hey, let's let's see what's out there. Maybe I'll take a trip. Maybe I you know, or, or maybe I really want to fly somewhere, but I don't care where I go, right? If, if maybe I want to go to a beach, but if this beach is too expensive, I'll go to a different one and that sort of thing. That's the most discretionary traveler. And I guess for people who have the stomach to do it, you know, even if they are booking a honeymoon or booking the trip of a lifetime, uh, the the trick is kind of to act more like a discretionary traveler, right? <laughs> Think like a person who doesn't care, even though you care. Now, you know, a number of years ago, I met a uh, PhD student at MIT who understood airline, the state of airline revenue management at that time, you know, in terms of what, and, and, and clearly understood the, the ideas we've talked about here and on earlier programs about, you know, forecasting and understanding the demand at each price point and things. But he had an idea that what if you could create a truly economically efficient program that the price was always, was never going to be cheaper than if you bought it right now. And could you forecast everything closely enough that you could know that even far out, if you sold a ticket, that tomorrow, maybe the fare is going to be the same. It might not be higher, but it'll never be lower. And he ran all kinds of models and all kinds of modeling to see if he could do it. And in sort of perfect information cases, he could sort of prove on a computer model that the airline could make as much money with that as they could with that, the then state of revenue management. Um, and it would be so much more consumer positive, right? The, whenever you, you know, don't hold your buy because whenever you buy, you know, as long as you buy now, you can know for sure the price will never be lower and that, you know, that might generate more sales, but it only worked in sort of these pristine, laboratory kind of situations never became a marketable kind of product and consumer demand is just far too volatile um too many people decide close to departure what they want to do airlines certainly try to match capacity to demand but that's a blunt instrument airplanes airplanes don't come in you know incrementally one seat sizes right they come yeah, in yeah. you know there's there's the 120 seat airline and the 150 seat airplane and the 180 seat airplane right they're big chunks so they apply yeah. airplanes and based on time of day based on day of week based on time of year there's all kinds of mismatches between supply and demand so that volatility in demand and how airlines have to use price to fill all the seats um, is what drives price changes that move up and down up into the point of departure. 
And so then back to that consumer uh, who paid uh, $418 per person and then was upset to see the same flights down to $291 per person. Uh, They did get some of it back, but they had to pay a a fee. Uh, Is it fine or is it a wine? Well, I I see why they why they were upset. I'll tell you what I think is the I think what is the fine and what is I go in the customer is that the that the refund they can't use they got like in a in a credit shell that airlines call it or a voucher and they can't use it against other services like they can't even use that the difference they paid the airline for their baggage payments that they're going to have to make. Yeah. That, that to me seems a little bit unfair, actually. Um, the fact that the price went down and that the airline would let them rebook for a, you know an administrative fee or things like that, that seems really quite a fair policy. And I would go with Hawaiian on that one and say they did a real nice thing for that customer because they could have just said, well, you can buy two more seats at 291 Right. Yeah. We, we've been holding your seats for a long time and never sold them to anybody else. We're not going to bump you off the plane to sell somebody else who, you know, might have offered us more. So I think my, I go with the airline on the policy that fares are going to change and you buy when you feel the price is right for a trip you want to take. Clearly, these people wanted to make sure they got to Las Vegas when they got there for what they called their trip of a lifetime. But when Hawaiian was nice enough to let them rebook, I would I would think it's I would go in the customer and say, you know, for the difference what they paid them, let them use it for anything else the airline sells too, whether it's baggage or a nice meal on board or a good rum and coke. Yeah. Uh, and, and one final note, by the way, I, I Delta made comments uh, publicly recently. I, I think it was uh, Ed Bastian, their CEO, but one of their executives uh, said that uh, that they actually are interested as revenue management science improves uh, in getting to a point where the fares don't bounce around uh, as much. Uh, they, they, they said they understand that consumers are frustrated when airfares are just very different from one day to the next up and down. And, and they think it could get to the point where not... I, I don't think what you described before, where it's always the cheapest farther out, but where it's just a little more stable. They said they're not there, uh, but they understand the frustration and and, uh, and they'd like to to get there someday. Well, there's no question that customers think that airline pricing is crazy. And from a consumer standpoint, it is crazy. It's economically makes sense. And you can mathematically show that it drives more revenue for airlines than if they don't do it that way. But that doesn't make it any easier to understand or seem any more rational when your fares are changing multiple times a day and you can buy it cheaper two weeks before departure than you could six weeks before departure. Yeah. Well, here we are in final approach uh, that, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Uh, so please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatback and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Again, 305-379-7429. Or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.